0: Thank you. Thank you, E.P., for sharing. I love that scripture. That's beautiful. Um, Well, our next speaker this morning is Brenda Soderstrom. Several of us, including myself, have had the opportunity to take part in Bible studies written by Brenda. And this morning, she is going to speak on faith over fear. Brenda and her husband have lived in Indiana for almost 30 years. They have four children. Jimmy, a third year medical student at IU and his wife, Danielle, who live in Indy. Pete, a recent college grad who lives and works near Bloomington. Katie is a junior at Butler University. Nice name, I'm Katie, I like that. (laughs) And Susie, a senior at Carmel High School heading to DePaul University in Chicago next year. They also have three dogs, Cassie, Charlie and Bentley yeah (laughs) Brenda loves to spend her free time being together with family most of all she has enjoyed and still enjoys watching her kids play sports right now it's watching Katie and Susie play division play soccer at division one schools she also enjoys being outdoors getting dirty and having sore muscles from working outside clearing trails at their family cabin Without further ado, welcome Brenda.
1: Thank you. I kind of feel like I could just let you all go home because Effie, you filled us so well already. Anything I say is just going to, like Katie's story, is just going to be spilling over because you guys are already full. Um, For those of you who don't know me, um, you'll be glad to hear Or if those of you who do know me, you'll be glad to hear that I have condensed my 12-hour talk down to two hours. (laughs) And now I'm going to attempt to deliver this in the next 30 minutes, so here we go. (laughs) But seriously, I'm very excited to be here today because God has been teaching me so much about faith over fear. When we hear that phrase, faith over fear, the first thing you may think of is a catchy slogan that you've seen somewhere. Don't dig up in doubt what you've planted in faith. The Lord is greater than the giants you face. Feed your faith and your doubts will starve to death. Or maybe it's one of those familiar fear not Bible verses. Joshua 1, Joshua 1, 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Or Isaiah 43, 1. Do not fear. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Or John 14, 27, peace. I leave with you my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. But regardless of how inspiring these verses and phrases are, if we're really honest with ourselves, we must acknowledge that our faith collides with fear in our hearts more often than we'd like to admit. If you do a Bible search on fear not or be not afraid, you'll quickly realize that God already knows that fear is going to creep into our lives, and yet he doesn't circumvent it, nor does he want us to be defeated by it. You see, God is not surprised that we have these fears, nor is he surprised when they frequently paralyze us into inactivity. So he reassures us again and again and again he reassures us in his word why we need not fear and more times than not it's fear not for i am with you so i've spent the last several months studying inspiring bible characters known for their faith i've been looking for patterns in their lives that have helped them to overcome their fear and to grow their faith and this morning i plan to share just a couple of these stories that follow a similar pattern for overcoming fear. And what I've discovered, ladies, is that faith over fear is really basic. And by basic, I do not mean easy. It's as simple as our words, our actions, and our focus. By words, I simply mean our dialogue with God. It begins when God calls you. You respond to him. When God calls out to you, do you want to hear his voice? Or are you hiding? cowering under the covers, hoping he's going to call on some other servant. Are you too busy with your plans to stop to hear his plan? As you read scripture and the Holy Spirit convicts you, what is your response? Is it repentance, or do you just go on living your own way? When God called out to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses, to Samuel, their response was, Here I am. That's it. Here I am. It reminds me of a soldier saying, reporting for duty. Their willingness to answer when God called was integral to their faith. Another aspect of our words is simply our dialogue with God. Great men and women of faith bring their concerns to God. In fact, scripture repeatedly says that they cry out to the Lord there are so many examples in scripture of Moses, Samuel, Elijah, the Israelites, the Israelites, the Israelites, they cry out to God because they knew that God would never shy away from their questions. Psalm 34.3 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. And Psalm 138.3, on the day I called, on the day that I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul so we see that these heroes of faith they answer when god calls and they aren't afraid to dialogue with him but they're also not afraid to boldly ask one of the clearest examples in scripture of someone asking for more faith is the demon possessed boy's father this is found in mark 9 and again in matthew 17. this father approaches jesus it says he falls to his knees, kneels before him, and says, Lord, have mercy on my son. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus replies, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. And then Mark 9:24 says, immediately, he says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. What an incredible request. Help me overcome my unbelief. A quick word of caution here. When I encourage you to boldly ask, by no means am I encouraging a name it, claim it, prosperity gospel. In fact, scripture gives us clear guidelines for our bold appeals to God. In John 14, 14, it says, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, that he hears us. You see, asking in Jesus' name and according to his will means that our request is gonna reflect his character, his will, his interests, his authority. We're not just asking this for ourselves. We are asking on behalf of Jesus. So my question for you, When you consider your dialogue with God, is your prayer life balanced? Do you spend time thanking him? Praising him? Do you sit quietly and allow him to speak into your life and convict you and realign your will with his? And finally, what requests do you make of him? I know that if I don't check myself, it's so easy for my requests and my petitions to be self-centered and not God-focused. And then specifically, do you dare to ask God to help your unbelief? You see, faith requires more than just our words and our dialogue. It also necessitates actions and obedience. If we're gonna have godly, obedient actions, we need to know God's word. There's no shortcut here. If you're going to obey God, you need to know what God says. We need to be able to parse all of our situations in life through the lens of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And once you know what God's word says, then it's our actions that demonstrate our faith. James 2, 18 to 24 is a clear example of the link between our belief and our actions. Someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith, and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Another incredible example of actions demonstrating faith is found in Luke 8 and again in Mark 5 of the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Scripture tell us that she suffered a great deal She had many doctors who cared for her. She had spent all her money trying to get better, and yet she had only gotten worse. And then in Mark 5, 27, it says, When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in a crowd. She touched his cloak because she thought, If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. You see, she believed that if she touched his cloak, she'd be healed, but she had to act upon this belief. And then the scriptures say, immediately, her bleeding stopped and she was freed from suffering. Jesus validates her action as he tells her, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Excuse me. But I think we can go one step further and recognize the significance of not only obeying, but immediately obeying. And perhaps no hero of faith is better to look at than Abraham. In Genesis 12-1, God calls Abram to leave his country, his people, his father's household, and go to the land that God will show him. And then maybe the most underrated verse in the Bible, Genesis 12:4, says, So Abram left as the Lord had told him. Yeah, he just left everything, his land, his inheritance, his family, to go where? He didn't know. He was going to go to a place that God was going to show him. And then again, later in life, in Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to take his son Isaac and to sacrifice him as a burnt offering up on one of the mountains that God was going to tell him about. So we have the story again. Get up, leave everything without knowing where you're going, and this time, instead of leaving behind your inheritance, I want you to sacrifice your legacy, your only son of promise. And yet, the Bible says in Genesis 22:3, Early the next morning, Abraham got up and took Isaac. This immediate and at once obedience seems to be a common thread among these heroes of faith in the Bible. The other aspect I noticed about Abraham's obedience was his not knowing where he was going. God was going to show him. So his focus had to be on God and only God and not on his surroundings or his circumstances. You see, it's critical that while we dialogue with God and act in obedience, we need to remain focused on God. There are a lot of popular and inspiring verses about fixing our eyes, our ears, and our thoughts on Jesus. Hebrews 12.2 tells us, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. John 8.47 Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Hebrews 3.1 Fix your thoughts on Jesus. And then one of my favorites from 2 Corinthians 10.5. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And while these verses are popular, in fact, you've probably heard them before, and you've probably memorized several of them in the past, but living them out proves much more difficult than just reciting them. You see, we are so easily distracted by what we see, what we hear, and what we think. Maybe that's why God used these exact verses to remind us to fix our eyes, our ears, and our thoughts on Jesus and not on our surroundings. Focusing on God also means continually acknowledging God's role in the situation. Too often we make life all about me. I love the word play on history, making it his story. Take for instance the parting of the Red Sea in Exodus 14 think a major character would be Moses what did Moses do he stretched out his hand over the sea okay another major player the Israelites what did they do first they were still and then they walked across and then we have Moses again stretching his hand out and the waters come back so that was their role in this great miracle what was God's role what did God do well in just Exodus 14 The scriptures tell us that God commanded Israel to move on, told Israel to stop their crying, told Moses to raise his staff and divide the water, hardened the Egyptians' heart, gained glory through Pharaoh, chariots, and the horsemen, sent an angel behind Israel, moved the pillar of cloud to the back of the Israelites to darken the way for Egypt and lighten the way for Israel, drove drove the sea back to dry land, threw the Egyptian army into confusion, jammed the chariot wheel, swept the Egyptians into the sea, and saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. You see, in his story, our role is this big. The rest is all about him. He's where our focus needs to be. Romans 12.3 warns us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And a great barometer for this is asking yourself, are you acknowledging God's role and seeking God's glory as it pertains to your life? And then we find the end result of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea on dry ground in Exodus 14, 31. It says, and when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him. You see, the reason we dialogue with God, the reason we obey God, the reason we focus on God is because ultimately it's all about God. It's all about our fear of God. And by fear of God, I mean our awesome reverence toward God. Author and pastor Paul David Tripp writes, I am deeply persuaded that it's only fear that ever defeats fear. It's only fear that ever defeats fear. In other words, only a greater reverence toward God can decimate our fears of man, situations, and circumstances. Fear of God doesn't mean that I cease being afraid of the thing that God is calling me to do, but it does mean that my vertical fear of God is ultimately what determines my words and my actions, rather than my horizontal fear of people, places, and things. In our remaining time, I'd like to look at a couple of case studies. This was probably the hardest part of this talk, was deciding which ones to share with you, because there are so many good stories in the Bible. The first one I want to share is from the Old Testament. It's from Judges 6 and 7. It's the story of Gideon. Just a little bit of background. In verse 1, it tells us that Israel had done evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so for seven years, God had given them over into the hands of the Midianites. In verse 2, it tells us that the Midianites were so oppressive that the Israelites sheltered in mountain clefts and caves. The Midianites ruined all their crops. They didn't spare any of them. And the Midianites invaded the land like a swarm of locusts and ravaged it. In verse 6, we finally see that the Midianites so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to God for help. And then in verse 8, God sends them a prophet. And this prophet reminds them of his faithfulness. He Reminds them that God brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery. That God had rescued them from the Egyptians. That God had delivered them from oppressors that God had driven out the inhabitants of the land before them, and that God had given them this land. And then he reminded them of his command. Do not worship the God of the Amorites. And yet Israel didn't listen. Do you see here how God is setting the stage for something that he's going to do miraculously in their lives? He reminds the Israelites that all these blessings were from the hand of God, but rather than acknowledge him, They chose to worship the God of the Amorites and glorify these false gods rather than the one true God. So now God introduces Gideon, Israel's next deliverer. And we find Gideon. He is threshing wheat in a winepress. Why is he in the winepress and not outside where he should be? Because he's fearfully hiding from the Midianites while he's threshing the wheat. The angel of the Lord appears to him and says, Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And his dialogue goes like this If the Lord is with us, why has this happened to us? You're saying the Lord is with us, but it really appears that God has abandoned us and He has now given us into the hands of the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord replies Go in strength, in the strength that you have, and save Israel. I'm sending you. Gideon's response How can I save Israel? I'm from the weakest clan, and I'm the least in my family. And again, the angel of the Lord, I will be with you. Strike and kill all the Midianites. I love how Gideon speaks from his heart. Times are bad. It seems like God has abandoned them. And Gideon is trying to process what he sees around him with what the angel is telling him. And he continues to dialogue. He says, if I have found favor, give me a sign that it's really you. I see this as Gideon's help my unbelief moment. Gideon wants what the angel is saying to be true. He desperately wants to believe it, but it doesn't seem true when he considers his surroundings. So in faith, he prepares an offering. He offers a sacrifice, and then fire comes from the rock and consumes it. And then we have this little freak out moment by Gideon as he realizes, I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And knowing what he does from God's word, he has a panic. He says, this is essentially a death sentence. And then the Lord responds back. He says to Gideon, peace. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So what does Gideon do? What is his response? Scriptures tell us that Gideon builds an altar and calls it the Lord is peace. If you think of what they're going through with the Midianites, that's really, that's a great name. The Lord is peace. Here we see Gideon acknowledging God's role in the situation and worshiping him. And yet again, the dialogue continues. The Lord comes back and says, I want you to take a second bull, and I want you to tear down your dad's altar to Baal, to Baal and the Asherah pole, and I want you to build a proper altar and offer a bull as a burnt offering on it. And the scriptures say, so Gideon did, as the Lord told him. And while we acknowledge Gideon's immediate response to do this, we also recognize that Gideon is still struggling with fear, as he does this at night under the guise of darkness, so no one's gonna see that he's the one who does this. But yet, he does it, he obeys. The rest of chapter six, we see the preparations on both sides for the battle that's forming, as the Midianites collaborate with other pagan nations And then verse 34, it says, the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he began to gather his army. So you kind of think, okay, Gideon is over his hump. He's conquered this fear. And then we have the fleece moment, which most of us are most familiar with when we think of Gideon. We see that fear creeping back into Gideon's life. And yet God patiently continues his dialogue with Gideon. And again, Gideon boldly asks for confirmation that God is really going to do what he says he's going to do. And this time, he says, okay, if I put this fleece out on the ground, I want tomorrow morning I want the fleece to be wet and the ground to be dry. So God does that, which, again, should be enough for Gideon, but it's not. He says, okay, God, so now I'm going to put the fleece out again, and this time I want the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet all around it from dew. And again, God lovingly obliges. We see God working Gideon through this fear to accomplish God's purposes in Gideon's and the Israelites' lives. This brings us to chapter 7. In verse 2, we find out that now Gideon has amassed too many men. He has 32,000 fighting men ready to go take on the Midianites, and God says, that's not going to do. Israel will boast. So immediately, God knocks out 22,000. still says, you have too many. So he takes that number down to 300 men. And he says, with the 300 men... I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. And yet, (laughs) even after all this, we continue to see Gideon struggling with fear. In fact, in chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, our all-knowing God says to him, I'm going to send you, Gideon, to eavesdrop on the Midianite camp and encourage you, this will encourage you to trust me. So Gideon goes out and he looks at the, at the Midianite camp. And it doesn't seem like it's going according to God's plan because what he sees is that the Midianites and their other pagan nations that have gathered around them are as thick as locusts everywhere. The entire valley is filled with them. In fact, their camels are too numerous to be counted. So Gideon's fear level is rising, is rising. And then he overhears two men talking. They had had a dream. And they're interpreting this dream. And after he hears that, this is a huge, huge turning point in this story. This is where Gideon's fear of God finally overtook his fear of the Midianites. His response, it says he bowed down and worshipped. And then he returns to camp. And immediately, he gets those 300 men up and ready. And he says, get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into our hands. And this is where I see that his faith really has risen above his fear because he is another trust God moment. How do they go in to fight the Midianites? They're essentially unarmed. They may or may not have had a sword on their side, but in one hand, they're holding a trumpet. In the other hand, they have a torch with a pitcher over it. Their battle plan consists of a great noise. They're gonna blow their trumpet and break the pitcher. Then there's gonna be a great blaze as the light that's under the pitcher is gonna illuminate the sky. And then they're gonna have a great shout for God and for Gideon. So that is their battle plan to to defeat this vast army of Midianites. And that is exactly what they do. In verses 21 and 22, it says that the Israelites stood in place to see the salvation of the Lord. That each man held his position around the camp and all the Midianites ran Crying out as they fled, the Lord caused the men to turn on each other with their swords, and the army fled. There is so much in the story about the importance of words, actions, and our focus in helping us overcome fear. We see a lot of dialogue, a lot of dialogue between Gideon and God. We see Gideon boldly asking God repeatedly for assurances that God is really going to do what God has said he was going to do. Through the prophet, we see this short history lesson of God's faithfulness in the lives of the Israelites. We see the importance of Gideon demonstrating his faith through his actions. We see the immediate, obedient response of Gideon and Gideon acknowledging God's role as he summons 300 men with, Get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into our hands. And finally, at the end, we see them giving God the glory. As they shout for the Lord and for Gideon. I realize we're almost out of time but I want to share one more quick example because as Katie said my my second son was named Peter and I love the name Peter he's one of my favorite bible characters so from Matthew 22 um, we're going to talk about Jesus and Peter when they walked on the water the background for this story is that after Jesus had fed the 5,000 people, he tells his disciples to go ahead in the boat, go off, and he's going to stay back and dismiss the crowd. It says, after he dismissed the crowd, Jesus goes up to the mountainside by himself to pray, alone. Shortly Shortly before dawn, we find that Jesus is going to walk out on the water towards the boat. And in verse 26, when the disciples realize that Jesus is walking out on the water, or someone is walking out on the water towards them, It says they cry out. They are terrified, and they cry out in fear. Jesus replies back, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And then Peter. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come. Then Jesus gets out of the boat, walks on the water, and came toward Jesus. And then in verse 30, Peter sees the wind says he's afraid, and he begins to sink. He again cries out, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus reaches out his hand and catches him and says, you have little faith, why did you doubt? It says they climbed into the boat, and the wind died back down. And then all those in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So we took two chapters before to get to all these points, and we're going to take 12 verses now and unpack this. You see the dialogue between Peter and Jesus. Jesus calls Peter to action, and Peter immediately trusts and obeys. I find it interesting that even the verbiage doesn't mention walking on water, but rather Peter says, tell me to come to you. I see this as Peter's bold ask. And what boldness this is when only moments ago it says that he was terrified Excuse me, he was terrified and he was crying out in fear. But then he focuses his eyes on Jesus. He hears Jesus' command and Jesus' assurance. And Peter throws caution to the wind and takes Jesus at his word. But I think my favorite part of the story is in verse 30, when fear creeps back in because Peter took his eyes off Jesus and again focused on his surroundings. And yet in this moment of fear, his first instinct is to cry out, Lord, save me. And then we see Jesus' incredible mercy, as it says immediately, He reaches out his hand and caught Peter, and then his loving rebuke, why do you doubt? And the summary of the story is that all who were in the boat worshiped Jesus, saying, truly you are the Son of God. See, it's amazing how many of these New Testament encounters with Jesus end in a very similar way. It says people were amazed. People were filled with awe. They worshiped Jesus, news of Jesus spread, many people followed him. And that's what our encounters with the Savior should do. It should encourage those around us to recognize God's glory. I think the reason that I love stories in the Bible so much is because the characters and the plot lines are so powerful and so inspiring. It's so easy to see God's character through his actions in people's lives but sometimes it's hard to translate this incredibly powerful God of the Bible, the God who parts seas, who repeatedly delivers his people from their enemies, who saves people from a den of lions, the the God who walks on water and heals people. It's hard to translate this incredibly powerful God of the Bible into our mundane lives because we're not knocking down Jericho's walls or slaying the giant Goliath. Our fears seem kind of pathetic in comparison. You know, we're afraid that money's tight, so maybe we're not going to give as generously to God's work as we should. We're afraid of what our neighbors and our family might think, so maybe we're not going to share our faith as vocally as we should. We're afraid we'll be rejected, so we're not going to lovingly confront a sister in Christ. We're afraid of looking stupid So at a Bible study, we're not going to ask that question that's been plaguing our faith. We're afraid of failure, so we don't attempt to make the most of the gifts that God has given us. We're afraid to leave the comforts of our predictable lives, so we don't step out in ministry. And we're afraid of what people might think if they really get to know us. We find it more comfortable to hide, rather than to be open and vulnerable I could go on and on, but I want to remind you that these patterns of faithfulness that we see in the Bible, words, actions, and focus, transcends time and location. The same God who delivered his people in miraculous ways also spoke to Elijah in a gentle whisper. God was not in the great and powerful wind. He was not in the earthquake, and he was not in the fire. God came in a gentle whisper. Nothing is too big or too small for God. In fact, how many Bible characters can you think of who were too young, they were outcasts, they were the least in their tribe, they had obvious character flaws, and yet God's word celebrates their faith. We need to stop limiting God by our fears. Throughout history, God has used cracked pots just like you and me to glorify himself. One final question I'd like to leave you with. Is your fear of God, your respect, your awe, your reverence toward God, is that greater than your fear of your circumstances? If not, what are you going to do about it? What needs to change in your words, your actions, and your focus? We'd like to give you guys a few minutes now just to quiet your heart before God in personal reflection. We've included some questions that you may want to consider in your packet. And I realize when you look at that list of questions, you're not gonna get through that in the next 10 minutes. (laughs) But we're hoping that by giving you a little bit of time to get started, it's gonna draw you back into an extended time of reflection later on at home.